SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome to yet another edition of the Conference USA Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. I uh, hope everybody is safe, happy, and healthy, as always. And today, uh, going back to our, our usual ways with a June CUSA News and Notes Roundup, Joe Lonergan and Eric Henry here with you once again. Eric, we were talking about before we started recording, it is truly the middle of summer, both here in the Pacific Northwest where I am and in uh, in Florida where you are, where it's so hot, it's, it's literally like affecting the technology we use to do this show. It's insane. <laughs> no, no doubt about it, Joe, actually. So in trying to practice, you know, safe social distancing and all that jazz, I've been like utilizing Instacart and various grocery delivery services. And one thing that happened to me is like, I, I think I was gone for like 10 minutes. I, I was doing something in the backyard, didn't realize that my groceries were outside and I had something like ice cream and, and something else. And like they melted within, it could have been any more than eight minutes. So that just goes to show you, it definitely is the dead of summer out here. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's a scorcher. Not the ice cream. Ugh. Not the ice cream, man. And like, okay, so, you know, not to get too sidetracked, but this is what happens when we have a chance to just catch up, right? You are uh, a native of Ohio who spent time in Kentucky. Like, mm-hmm. you're a bluebell guy, right? Or no? Yeah, of course. Of course. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, anyone who's grown up in the South is swears by bluebell. And it was the bluebell vanilla. And that crushed me. Because ah. as, as someone who does not indulge in very many, like, sweets, I, when I do it, like I do it big, I do like, you know, ice cream and brownies and all that. And the bluebell melted. So that crushed me. I think the thumbnail for this episode now is just going to be like a bowl of melted ice cream. And then we'll get a plug in that. So taps plays when people load the page. Like that's so that's such a sad image of just melted ice cream, uh, especially bluebell. Exactly. Uh. All right. Well, you're welcome for the free advertising, by the way, Bluebell. Anyway, um, let's talk about some news and notes from the last month or so. Let's start off with uh, Athlon Sports naming their all-conference team for the upcoming 2020 season. Um, Offense headlined by Chris Robison at quarterback, which absolutely makes sense. And then you have uh, Brendan Knox and Spencer Brown at the running back positions with uh, Justin Henderson in there as well. And then at the receivers, Victor Tucker and uh, Austin Watkins from UAB. Joshua Simon at tight end from Western and then offensive line, some interesting names here that uh, you'll want to be paying attention to this year. Uh, Cody Russi at center and then uh, Kane Madden from Marshall, uh, Deontay Demery from FIU, Jordan Meredith from Western and then Arvin Fletcher from Southern Miss. Um, so Eric, bef- I'm curious to get your take on this. First of all, that backfield, I have no qualms with it. I think all those names are far and away the uh, the best picks as far as those skill position goes. Um, the offensive line for me is not that I disagree with it. I just think this is going to be a really interesting season because I think a lot of the guys who really led the way in those position groups have either graduated or moved on to the NFL. So I think the pathway to the postseason awards or the names that we are, are going to see really stand out on the offensive line it, it's wide open right there's so many opportunities for these young guys who really haven't had the opportunity to play that much really step up here yeah absolutely and i'm going to give you two names to watch for who weren't part of that 
first team, according to Athlon Sports, who could very easily be a part of the actual team, you know, named by Conference USA at the end of the year. The first one is Robert Jones. He's the right tackle for Middle Tennessee State. Joe, I don't know if you saw this note. I don't know if I happened to pass it along to you or not, but he actually did not give up one sack last year and started every single game for Middle Tennessee State, which the reason I want to emphasize that, I know people at home may say, okay, he didn't give up a sack. You know, it's good, but why does that make him necessarily noteworthy? If you remember, he, his quarterback is Asher O'Hara. So you're talking about a guy who's going to scramble out of the pocket and always look to make plays. And if you're playing any position on the offensive line, but specifically the tackles, when you have that quarterback who's going to go out there and, and kind of freelance and make plays, that makes it especially harder to be a guy who's not going to give up a sack. I mean, Joe, you'll remember back in the uh, the old days, you know, as uh, we date ourselves here, um, to kind of weird call this old, but like, Remember how Michael Vick and Donovan McNabb and guys like that always used to be among like the highest sacked quarterbacks. And it wasn't that they couldn't, you know, escape the rush. It was that because of the fact that they did evade the pocket so much, they tended to be higher up in terms of being sacked. So uh, Robert Jones is a guy not to kind of, you know, dwell on that point. Another one is Shane Magoo from FIU. He's, you know, really worked his way up from being essentially Alex Magoo's little brother, former FIU quarterback into being a really well-rounded um, center guard, kind of jack of all trades there for FIU. So him, Desmond Noel, Willie Allen, Jalen Jalen Fisher from Charlotte, all guys who I think could, could potentially you know be up there in the, in the first team. And, and from the first team, I think you know Arvin Fletcher is a guy who's been underrated his entire career. Uh, I believe he started every single game uh, in his three years. Yeah, I think he's had 36, 37 straight starts. De'Antney Demery, I should know that name covering FIU. He's a guy who all the talent is there. So, I mean, I understand him being there. Um, Jordan Meredith, Cody Rusty. I mean, all talented guys, but I I definitely agree with you in in the sense that it's pretty fluid. I mean, those stalwarts that you had over the past two years have kind of moved on to the NFL or uh, graduation. Yeah, it's interesting. I think with um, a couple of these selections with um, MTSU, like you mentioned, and – Marshall and Western probably it's interesting that we're all probably going to see the offensive lines of these teams stand out and they have very mobile quarterbacks. So it's going to take significantly more effort to protect those kind of players, but um, it it definitely seems like there's an an archetype of, uh, of offensive linemen that we need to be watching out for in the CUSA season here. Um, So good insight there. Appreciate that, Eric. And then moving on to the defense, um, this offensive or rather this defensive line um, right off the bat, I I can tell you, looks pretty stacked, led, of course, by D'Angelo Malone of Western Kentucky uh, with Keon White of ODU, uh, Dion Noville of North Texas, and then Jordan Smith of, uh, of UAB. And then when you look at the linebacker group, uh, some names that you might not be all that familiar with in Christopher Mall of UAB and then Devontae Beckett of Marshall, uh, Marshall rather, and then uh, Blaise Aldridge, of course, from Rice, who you'll probably be familiar with as one of the stands out, standouts of that unit of the last couple of years. Um, and then for the corners, we have Bronte Harris of UAB and uh, Caleb Ford-Demmitt of ODU. Um, and then bringing up the rear in the safety it only makes sense. Reed Blankenship of MTSU, as well as Ben DeLuca from Charlotte. 
Um, so safeties, I wouldn't imagine either of us have any qualms about that. Those two guys, I think, are far and away the standouts of that position group, particularly in this conference. Um, along the defensive line, um, like I mentioned, I- I'm pretty happy with their picks there, uh, particularly with, obviously, D'Angelo Malone. He was, uh, I thought, far and away the best overall defensive player in the conference last year. I'm interested to see how Dion Noble rises to the occasion for North Texas. I think, obviously, that whole team had uh, some issues to fix next year. But I think with the departures of kind of some of the older players that they, they had from 2019's team, um, the hole's definitely there for, for him to be a leader of that unit. Um, and then honestly, I, I'll tell you what, it's interesting that there's two old dominion guys on this list. Not that um, that team's completely devoid of talent, but the fact that, um, uh, you know, obviously they have uh, a lot of ground to cover based on how they performed last year. So uh, Keon White along that line, as well as uh, Caleb Ford, Demet, uh, hopefully they can kind of lead the way for a group that, um, like we've said many, many times over the course of the last two years, really needs some work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Joe, really quick, before I jump into kind of my thoughts on the defensive side of the ball there, doesn't it kind of feel to you like Conference USA is kind of becoming like a, a defensive line factory? Because, I mean, you think about the past three years, you got – um, of course, name off the top of my head, Marcus Davenport, UTSA. Then you have mm-hmm. O'Shane Zimenez in 2018 and Alex Highsmith last year. So does it kind of seem like Conference USA is coming kind of that defensive end, like pass rusher factory? It does. And, you know, we, we talked about it before, but it really feels like in particular, it's becoming a breeding ground for the pass rusher archetype that's really becoming popular and effective within the NFL, right? You have these guys who aren't necessarily like the Warren Sapp type defensive linemen where they're just these, these big, you know, mounds of, of muscle and power or whatever that clog up the running lanes in the middle, but they're these long arms, uh, quick around the edge type guys who uh, obviously D'Angelo Malone fits into that category. And I think he was kind of the, the example of, of what you're trying to think of amongst this current group of players. And then obviously uh, O'Shane Zimenez and those other guys, I think fall into that category too. So yes, I agree with you. And in particular, that archetype of pass rushers really starting to shine through in COSA. Absolutely. D'Angelo Malone and as well, Keon White. I mean, Keon White's a guy who he started career as a tight end. So, you know, he has the athleticism, but he's going to I think he's going to wreck the conference USA this year in terms of just his sheer potential. I mean, he's a guy, if my memory serves correct off the top of my head, something like 20 or 21 tackles for loss last year. Didn't quite get the sacks, but you could say the same thing about Alex Highsmith in 2018. He was a guy who had 20, 21 tackles for loss. Maybe only had four, four and a half sacks. And then you saw what he did last year. Um, Really quick, talk about Dion Noble. He's a mountain of a man, like 6'5", 310. Last year had 61 tackles, 13 and a half tackles for loss, and three and a half sacks. So I think he's going to break out really well. But just to your point about the safeties, I mean, Reed Blankenship, uh, to give, give you a little bit of insight here, FIU offensive coordinator Rich Skrosky had a chance to talk to him right after signing day and, you know, just asked him about some of the players across the league that he, you know, really talks about and really kind of points out when he's, game planning week in and week out, he mentioned that he made a point to go up and talk to Reed Blankenship before the Middle Tennessee State FIU game. And Reed was hurt, so he actually wasn't playing, but he made a point to go up and talk to him and say, hey, that you're a heck of a player. I mean, Reed Blankenship arguably has been the best defensive player in Conference USA for the past three years running. So no doubt about his credentials in the back end as far as uh, being at safety and as well with Ben DeLuca as well. But just like you mentioned, Joe, the entire defense, I mean, Chris Mole, 
a stud, Blaze Aldridge, a stud, Devontae Beckett, pound for pound. The fact that he's playing linebacker at 5'10", 5'11", about 210 pounds, but led Conference USA in tackles last year. I mean, just outstanding. So a ton of talent returning on the on the first team um, first team off excuse me first team defense for athlon sports and this quick look at some of the guys from the from the second team defense you mentioned old dominion lawrence garner is another guy as well i mean if you look at the odu um the the defense i don't want to say they got hung out to dry but (laughs) the defense performed admirably considering the fact that they spent the majority of the season last year on the field so don't quite look at the ODU defense as a reflection of that record. I believe they won one game last year. So that ODU defense does have some studs. So Lawrence Garner is another guy to keep an eye on as well. That's a solid point. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, and then moving into uh, – well, before we jump into the second team, let's talk about the specialists really quick. Yeah. Um, at kicker, we have Ethan Mooney from North Texas, which I think comes as a little bit of a surprise, but I do think based on kind of the high-paced offense that Seth Luttrell obviously likes to run, we're definitely going to probably, anyway, uh, see a lot of him um, based on kicking extra points and hopefully with for their sake being in field goal range quite a bit. Um, and then at the punter, you have John Haggerty from Western Kentucky. Um, I, I think that's a good pick. I think he was um, – anytime you say like, you know, your punter performed really well last year, that's usually not a great indication of how well your offense performed. But I think this is one of the rare indications with Western and, and how they did last year where that's not the case. So um, I think that's, that's interesting that he got the recognition that he deserves there. Um, just kind of a funny note about how they um, selected the kick returner and the punt returner for the first and second team here. Uh, Jalen Adams of Southern Miss, first team kick returner, second team punt returner, <laughs> which I don't, you know, I feel like you got to make them one or the other if you're going to go either way on that one. Um, and then for the first team punt returner, you have Talit Keaton from Marshall. Um, so interested to get your thoughts on that, Eric Henry. No, yeah, I didn't even realize that. No, it's pretty funny. I, I'm right there with you. I think you gotta, you're kind of hedging your bets. Like he's gonna show up on a team somewhere, right? Whether it's the punt guy or the kick returner. Um, just quick thoughts on the specialist. I I think you know we saw the graduation of really once again some standouts over the past few years. You know Jack Fox and and uh, and you know guys like that. So um, I think it's really kind of up in the air. I'll give you two names to keep an eye on if you could rise up and make that list and i'm gonna keep it local here in south florida the kicker spot i'm gonna go with um or excuse me with the kicker spot i'm gonna go with with jonathan cruz i, I think he's a guy who, who could rise up he's obviously not locals from charlotte but at the punter position i'm gonna give you two guys who are local one tommy heatherly he made the third team list but tommy booted the heck out of the ball the only issue with him was when he was good he was good i mean lots of hang time you know really long kicks but he did have the occasional shank. I mean, I talk about it. He, he started off rough at Tulane and did have a few shanks from time to time. And then also Matt Hayball at FAU really did a good job. but kind of came in and took the job from Sebastian Riella, who now is in the transfer portal for FAU, who was their starting punter heading into last year. Matt Hayball, the Australian former uh, Australian rules punter. So uh, keep an eye on those guys. 
Absolutely. And uh, running through the second team offense here, Chris Reynolds at quarterback. I like that pick a lot. Uh, Gage Walker and Sincere McCormick uh, filling out the backfield there alongside Aaron McAllister from Charlotte. At the receivers, you got Tim Jones of Southern Miss and Jalen Darden from North Texas. Uh, Marshall Xavier Gaines at tight end. And then in the offensive line, you have uh, Jalen Fisher from Charlotte, Cole Spencer from Western, and then uh, Desmond Noel from FAU with uh, Willie Allen of Louisiana Tech. And uh, a guy you've, you've mentioned a couple times, Shane Magoo from FIU. Uh, my kind of overall thought on this second team group is I do think there's one or two guys here who, you know, if somebody trips up along the way during the season could very easily uh, become the number one guy, so to speak at that position within the conference, uh, particularly, you know, Gage Walker based on what we kind of saw from him last year. And if Spencer Brown has another down season, then I think we could see him elevate his game and, and rise into uh, you know, a first team selection by the time the end of the season comes around. And then uh, of course, sincere McCormick um, had a, one of the more memorable uh, freshman campaigns last year. And um, if UTSA is going to make, you know, any kind of headway of getting back to like bowl eligibility or just overall being competitive within CUSA West, I think he's going to be um, a significant piece of that puzzle. And it's good to see outlets like Athlon recognizing that. Yeah, Joe, absolutely. I mean, when you look at the second team and you know, I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I honestly think, and maybe I'm biased because, you know, I've really been doing a deep dive into the league over the past two years and doing this top 50 players in CUSA uh, piece, you know, this series. But I, I really think there's a lot of talent, especially on offense, you know, in this league. And, and I think maybe part of it is the style of offense that's run. You know, a lot of teams run the spread. But it just feels like there are a lot of playmakers all the way around. You know, you mentioned Spencer Brown, who's not even a part of this on the second team. He's got them banged up by injuries. But you look at young guys like Sincere McCormick, a Gage Walker, Western Kentucky, who just needed a chance to get on the right side of the ball, right? Um, Jalen Darden, Tim Jones, you know, the list goes on and on. So I just think there's a, there's a ton of talent you can look for on the offensive side. Chris Reynolds, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows how we feel about him. And even at, take a look at the quarterbacks for a second, right? You know, Asher O'Hara is a guy who, um, I know he didn't make a, a, a team last year, but he was an honorable mention last year. And, and he's still fighting to get past a Chris Reynolds and Chris Robinson who have two years of eligibility left. So there's the really a, a chance that a guy like either a Reynolds or an Asher O'Hara could in theory, again, not make a, a postseason first or second team for the rest of their career. So, I mean, that just goes to show you the, the depth of the conference, right? Absolutely. Um, and before we move on to another topic, do want to go into the uh, second team defense here. And uh, this is a pretty good indication of the kind of depth that you're going to see across the league this year, hopefully anyway. Uh, Jacques Turner at the defensive line, uh, or making up part of the defensive line, rather, a guy that we just got done talking to uh, our buddy Patrick McGee about. Definitely think he's going to make a pretty significant impact for Southern Miss this year. Um, and then rounding out the second team defensive line, uh, Marquis Watts from Charlotte, Milton Williams, uh, Louisiana Tech, and then Darius Hodge from Marshall. In the linebacker core, you've got Kyle Bailey from Western Kentucky, who was uh, undoubtedly one of the driving forces behind the success they had on that side of the ball last year. Uh, Kiki Leroy from FAU, Lawrence Gardner from Old Dominion, another Monarch. And then at the corners, Nafis Lyon from Charlotte and uh, Richard Dames from FIU. 
And then at the safeties, uh, the veteran Antoine Kincaid, it's hard to believe that he is still with Western Kentucky. Um, <laughs> right. And then uh, Kyle Hemby from Southern Miss um, making up the, the other safety. Um, I, I kind of mentioned the guys that stand out to me amongst this group, but um, I'm interested to hear your take on who you think uh, from this group could make uh, the biggest impact on their team this year. And uh, also just in general, uh, Rashard Danes, um, interested to, to hear your thoughts on what he brings to FIU's defense. Yeah, I'll take the first question first. The guys who stand out to me on this list are Marquise Watts, once again. I mean, this league is really loaded with defensive ends. Jacques Turner is nice, but the two guys I really think are, are, are Marquise Watts and Lawrence Garner. Uh, I think those guys, I mean, Lawrence Garner, like I mentioned, uh, was either second or third. I believe, like some memory serves me correct, I believe Devontae Beckett had 122 tackles, should have led the conference. And I think Lawrence Garner may have been second or third. I know it was him. Aldridge and and Beckett, who finished one, two, three. I don't remember specifically which order, but those two guys are studs. I'm a huge Kyle Bailey guy. I think Kyle Bailey can ball, really a fan of his. But the two guys I'll go with are Watts and Garner. As to Rashard Dames, it's funny, Joe, right? Because you know everyone knows that or he's a twin. His brother, Richard Dames, is a twin uh, safety defensive back for FIU. And over the first two years, it was really Richard Dames. And, and I won't even go with just the first two years, Joe. Um, I don't want to say that Richard was a throw-in. I, I think that's too strong of a of a claim. But the more coveted player was really Richard initially coming out of high school. Richard was the guy who had to take his time, didn't redshirt, but had to uh, you know kind of chip in on special teams and got a little more playing time in twenty nine in twenty eighteen, and then twenty nineteen. Joe, I mean, he just really broke out. You may remember the Western Kentucky game. We had a one-handed pick six of Stephen Duncan, took it back something like 75, 80 yards. Uh, funny about him being overshadowed by, excuse me, overshadowed by Richard. They actually gave the pick initially to Richard in the, uh, in the press box. This goes to show you how much he's at the fight for respect. But he's a guy who, I mean, you talk about self-made. In my opinion, he was one of the most underrated, if not the most underrated player in Conference USA last year on the defensive side of the ball. Just he's capable of playing inside at nickel, capable of playing safety, capable of playing corner. And, you know, he's called Little Twin just because of the fact that Richard is a little bit bigger. Richard's probably 180, 185, where Richard is 165, 170. But he's just a guy who's a playmaker. I mean, I, I don't know what more I can say about him, but just kudos to him for the fact that he's really been overshadowed for the most of his, um, I don't know if we want to say advanced football career, but, you know, kind of junior and senior year of high school First two year of college, first two years of college, excuse me. You know, R Richard is the guy who's talked about, and then Richard steps up in, in a big way. So, uh, look for Richard Dame. Look for big things out of him uh, this year at FIU. Awesome. Appreciate that insight, Eric. And as we move forward in the show, highly encourage you all to check out Athlon's uh, selections and kind of have the debate amongst yourselves. Fun way to kill time as we uh, move through the offseason here. But looking forward to the 2020 postseason now, uh, CUSA just recently announced their bowl lineup for 2020 through 2025. And uh, there's a couple curveballs in here compared to how CUSA usually does things. Um, CUSA Commissioner Judy McLeod said in a recent statement, Quote, we are very pleased with our future bowl lineup. Our teams will continue to have postseason opportunities in outstanding destinations that are very accessible to our schools and their fans. We are also excited to have additional flexibility to create great matchups, end quote. Um, so as part of that new bowl cycle, CUSA uh, is going to continue to send teams to the Bahamas Bowl and the New Orleans Bowl. Um, CUSA is guaranteed to send a team to the uh, Shreveport-based bowl game 
in 2021 and 2025, and they're going to have a secondary agreement with that bull in the other years of the cycle. Um, and also the Hawaii Bowl, that's going to continue to be a part of the lineup as well. Um, specific years for that, 2020, 2022, and 2024. So in those years, uh, a CUSA team is going to continue to get uh, probably the best free vacation you can ask for as a college football player, unless you're going to the national championship game. But then again, that's not really a vacation. I digress. The uh, remaining guaranteed selections in the cycle, they're going to get either four or five of these uh, per season, depending on how things shake out. Um, that's going to include the Lending Tree Bowl in uh, Mobile, uh, as well as um, three to four of these. That uh, Some of these are, are pretty traditional based on how COSA has sent teams to bowl games in the past. Some of these are a little bit different. Uh, one, of course, you got the Armed Forces Bowl in Fort Worth, the Birmingham Bowl, the Boca Raton Bowl, the Camellia Bowl, the Cure Bowl, the and now the Fenway Bowl in Boston. That's probably the biggest curveball of this group. Um, and then the First Responder Bowl in Dallas, the uh, Frisco Bowl in, uh, of course, Frisco, Texas, the Gasparilla Bowl, which we've talked about at length in past seasons of the show, uh, and then the Myrtle Beach Bowl in South Carolina. I believe that's a new addition here, and uh, the New Mexico Bowl in Albuquerque. So I, I think some of these uh, could be pretty fun, particularly the one that interests me the most is that Fenway Bowl in Boston. Um, obviously, things like the pinstripe bowl have been kind of interesting in the past with obviously the venue is kind of the main selling point for fans. But the fact that a lot of these games take place in December and January, not the most fun time to be in the Northeast. Um, so you got to wonder, you know, how much staying power are those bowl games going to have historical venue or not? Um, but really, when you look at uh, some of these other games, um, the only other real curveball, I think, is the Myrtle Beach Bowl, um, which I, I think that makes sense just based on geography and where a lot of these schools are and where uh, CUSA fans will tend to want to travel to during the winter months. Um, so I think this really overall kind of makes sense for CUSA from you know, a cost perspective and just like a, a ticket sales perspective. I, I don't think they shook things up too much, which I don't think they necessarily needed to. Um, but yeah, I think most of these are pretty uh, desirable locations that you want to go, at least for this level of football. So first things first, you know, and, and by no means do I want to denigrate the people at the Conference USA office who, uh, you know, Russell Anderson, Cassie Logan, all those guys who, uh, who are in charge of communications and writing the press releases. I had to read this thing like six times to get it because, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and it's not really any fault of their own. It's more so just the agreements, right, where you have the 2020, 2022, 2024, this bowl in 2021, 2025, like, I had to read it a couple times. I think I resent mm -hmm. out the tweet three times. So uh, by no means am I denigrating them. It's, it's a bit confusing. So if you're listening to this podcast, uh, be prepared to read the press release like nine times if you're going to try to look, take a look for yourself. That aside, I'm right there with you as far as the destinations, right? You know, you know, you got Bahamas, you know, you got Hawaii. So those are really desirable, uh, you know, destinations if you're a college student. But I want to ask you this, and you kind of touched on it, right, with the kind of the new outlier being Fenway Bowl in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, I just want you to take a look. Let's let's take the existing agreements out of it, right? So just the ones that we've got listed one through 11. Um, 
if I may put you on the spot, Joe, top three or four destinations just for you as a college football fan slash fan of, you know, maybe travel in general, mm-hmm. <laughs> what would be your top destinations to, to check out here for, uh, for bowl? Sure. I mean, a Hawaii bowl, of course, I think that's, uh, that's probably number one, just for me. Um, then I think you got the new Orleans bowl probably in there. I think like new Orleans is never short of, uh, a, like, it's the Superdome. It's a, it's a pretty decent venue. And obviously new Orleans is never really short on, uh, fun things to do. It's a decent place to be in, in the winter months, given the climate and all that. Um, here's the thing. I really like New Mexico. Um, while, you know, you can talk about, you know, Albuquerque specifically, um, unless you're a breaking bad fan, there's uh there's not a ton really there, but if you're into like the outdoors and that kind of thing, um, and just kind of temperate climates, that's a pretty fun place to be. So I'll put that in my top four. Um, and then for that last one, I'd probably say I don't know. I'll probably say the uh, the Cure Bowl in Orlando, just because, like, I mean, we 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 give Florida um, an adequate amount of flack, but uh, you know, if you're gonna be if you're gonna be someplace and, and kill time around the uh, around the Christmas months, Orlando is not a bad place to be. First off, before I, I jump in here, um, Joe, are you a Disney guy? Um, I'm a, I'm a universal guy. I think you're a universal guy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) not to get too sidetracked, but yeah, no, I think, I think universal does a a pretty good job of, um, I mean, putting, putting things that in there that you can do that aren't roller coasters. I mean, I already had like pretty bad motion sickness before. And now with, you know, my, uh, medical condition, I can't do, I can't do roller coasters anymore. So I think there's a lot more, there's a lot more stuff to do if you're not into that at Universal as opposed to Disney, but that's a whole separate podcast. <laughs> no, no, okay. I just was yeah. asking because I was wondering why you would, you know, just to my face or relatively speaking <laughs> to my face, choose Orlando over my hometown of Tampa, but I digress. Um, <laughs> no, uh, um, if we're taking a look at the list here, I'm not going to lie. I am all about a trip to Boston. I, I granted it will be cold. We've understood this, that it'll be during the winter months, but I am, you know, going to check out Boston. And of course, let's take out the Hawaii's and the Bahamas. You know, those are understood. But in order, I'm going to go with Boston. I'm going to go with the Gasparilla Bowl in Tampa only because uh, Raymond James Stadium is only about a 15 minute drive from my house. Um, we've got uh, looking down the rest of this list here. I mean, I'm down for Myrtle Beach. I, I've heard good and bad things about Myrtle Beach. I've heard that it's overrated, but I've also heard that it's it's a it's a destination. So I'll check out some Myrtle Beach and then I'm going to buy in here with um how about Dallas? You know, um no disrespect because I, I covered the Camellia Bowl last year and uh, Montgomery, Alabama is a fine place. And listen, no one appreciates a 2 a.m. run to Waffle House more than me. But I, I think I counted the amount of times I went to Waffle House when I was in Montgomery for those three days, and it was like nine times. Um, so I, I, unless my preferred meal of choice is Waffle House or the O'Charlies, uh, I think I'm going to buy in on Dallas here. I forgot O'Charlies was a thing, but <laughs> that's that's a solid point about Dallas. I do think there's uh, there's obviously plenty plenty of good food to eat and plenty of good ways to entertain yourself if you're in town. Um, and yeah, with Myrtle Beach, I guess like, I don't know. This is just kind of my personality, but like one of my favorite things and like my favorite vacation spots in general is like a beach town 
in the off season. So like going to places like Myrtle Beach or, you know, I don't know, some of like the coastal towns in Oregon out here in like October <laughs> when there's like nobody around and you can basically just have like the whole beach to yourself. That is like my personal favorite thing to do. But uh, obviously when we're talking about December and January in places like Myrtle Beach and Tampa, um, it's it's tourist central and that takes a lot of the enjoyment out of it for me anyway. So, um, but yeah, I do think um, this isn't really a bad slate of bowl games when you kind of think about um, the alternatives uh, for a lot of the, the G5 conferences out there. So I, I do think if, if you're going to buy tickets to a bowl game, if you're a CUSA fan, there's certainly worse positions you could be in. No, no doubt about that. I'll definitely agree with you there. Nice. Uh, so, Let's move on to another topic then, obviously, with uh, the 2020 season and uh, one side effect of the whole COVID-19 situation for college football is, you know, are fans, at least in the traditional sense, going to be allowed to come within stadiums and and be close to each other and, and do you know, the things that college football fans have typically done in the past? And signs are pointing to probably not. However... Memphis football has uh, basically announced that they're thinking that it's just going to be season ticket holders attending games this season. Um, they feel like they can pull that off uh, with the proper social distancing guidelines moving into the 2020 season here. Um, and I, based on kind of their setup in the stadium, I think it's it's going to be an interesting way to go. I think a lot of um, I think a lot of college athletics programs are going to be watching how teams like Memphis you know, do this. I do think a like G five football teams are going to be in big trouble if they don't at least get some revenue out of college football this year. Um, I do think college football teams are going to be in big trouble if they don't at least get some revenue out of this season. And uh, by taking these kind of measures, they're at least ensuring that they're going to recuperate some of those losses. You know what I'm saying? So I think this is at least like best case scenario for them, but you do have to wonder how much are things going to change over the next three months or so to where this is, this is even going to be something that they could potentially do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you took that angle. I'm actually going to kind of go in a different direction here and I'll just, you know, make it quick because you know, we're, we're kind of running short on time here, Joe, but what are your thoughts on, and I guess, once again, you made the point that just off of, you know, a business sense, you have to prioritize the season ticket holders. Where does that leave the students? I, I, I listen, it, it's, it's all about dollars and cents. So I'm not going to sit here and act naive as if the students should somehow be prioritized more so than your season, excuse me, than your season ticket holders. But I just want to get your quick thoughts um, because I, I think you pretty much hit on everything that I would hit on quick thoughts on where that kind of leaves the students and, um, Maybe it's a good thing in, in the end, in the long run, that maybe you're, um, I guess you're lessening another area that students could, in fact, contract coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, basically, like, I, I can't speak for Memphis because I don't, I don't know. But the way it works at a lot of college football schools is the price of your tickets kind of gets built into either your tuition or there's like a right. separate athletics right. fee right i would anticipate that a lot of schools basically just eliminate that aspect of tuition if they do end up going this route where it's only going to be season ticket holders or they can only have so many fans in the stadium um i would imagine that you would have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis right where 
Um, I can't speak for Memphis, so I don't know. But if you have a school where the student turnout is very good, then I would imagine you would at least try to find a solution that, that makes sense, whether it's a lottery or something to where students can uh, can attend games and you can justify still charging them that athletics fee and recoup that part of the revenue, right? If not, then I don't blame college athletic departments at all for just being like, look, you know, if you're a student, unless you buy a ticket in the traditional sense, you're you're out of luck because you know this is these are pretty dire financial times for some of these programs. So I I, I ultimately think a lot of these schools are just going to say, look, no no students. Um, it's just going to be you know donors and people who can afford the season tickets because we need the money. Um, unless you are you know one of these giant P five programs where you can do it in a way that makes sense and observe the proper social distancing guidelines and all of that. Um, but yeah. And, and the other thing is like, I mean, we've all seen the studies like student attendance at, at college football games is rapidly dwindling anyway, for a variety of reasons. So I think this is, um, you know, really just going to kind of spur a, a change that was probably five to 10 years down the line anyway, but, um, it, it's just going to make it happen now as opposed to then. Yeah. You know, like I said, just kind of summarize, give my quick thoughts on it. There is that you kind of hit the nail on the head as far as my concern being the fees that students tend to pay or not tend to pay. I went to UCF, we paid fees. I, I can't think of any school in the nation, not that I have done an informal poll or research, but that's pretty much how students end up paying for those things, you know, called an athletic fee. So just wanted to kind of touch on that really quick because I, I did think at least in some sort of fairness to the students, that's something that has to be addressed when you're paying an athletic fee and then you don't have the opportunity. Now, granted, certainly coronavirus is more than a mitigating circumstance, something that's more than out of the control of the universities. But with that being said, still something you have to account for. So kind of sums up my thoughts on that situation. It's certainly going to be something interesting um, to pay attention to over the course of the next several months. Um, so I, w I would encourage everybody to kind of pay attention to what's going on with with Memphis um, as they become one of these uh, these test pilot schools, really, um, for, for everything that's going on with uh, with coronavirus. Um, let's jump back into actual football talk real quick. Uh, and my beloved Western Kentucky Hilltoppers, uh, the quarterback position is something that's been uh, discussed heavily over the course of the last couple of years. But in particular, with the departure of Stephen Duncan, uh, as well as Ty Story, uh, who graduated, of course, last season, um, that signal caller position is uh, up for grabs. And uh, there are some interesting candidates to uh, to lead that. Of course, you got uh, the grad transfer Tyrell Pigram, or uh, rather not the grad transfer, but the transfer Tyler Pigram, uh, who I think could probably be the uh, front runner uh, originally from Birmingham, Alabama, uh, played us uh, some significant time at uh, Maryland over the course of the last uh, couple of years. Um, decent dual threat quarterback, uh, had a 100-yard game against Purdue uh, in 2019. Um, and then, of course, we still have uh, Kavaris Thomas, who's uh, who's in there, who who could be, um, you know, who could make a run at that position. Certainly has the athletic ability to do so. And then somewhere in this mix is Davis Shanley, who um, you know performed admirably in spots uh, two years ago before Ty Story came in, and uh, you know, obviously filled in when when Stephen Duncan uh, was suspended and hurt and all that. Um, 
so it's an interesting three horse race, but if I had to pick one right now, I would think Tyson Helton would give preference to Pigram just because he has the experience against some of these big time programs. Um, and, uh, frankly, I think just the kid is a really, um, impressive athletic specimen so far. He's five ten, uh, pretty big guy. And like I mentioned, uh, decent dual threat and based on what we've seen, I mean, really more so prior to the Tyson Helton era. Um, but especially when you have a, an offensive line that's still kind of learning how to gel, like what I anticipate Western's offensive line is going to do this season, it pays to have somebody who is mobile and is capable of throwing a, a decent deep ball. And from the film that I've watched of Pigram, I think he fits that mold pretty well. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, right? Because you look at Tyrell Pigram and like you, you kind of, um, I can understand how someone listening to this would be like, what's Joe talking about when you say he's 5'10", but he's kind of big. He's built like Russell Wilson. He's thick. He's 5'10", 5'11", but like 220. So for those of you who haven't seen Tyrell Pigram, just kind of get that image in your head as opposed to maybe a smaller, more you know, diminutive type guy. But I'm going to go the other way. I do think Pigram has potential. And obviously there's a reason why Tyson Helton brought him in. I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to go with, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm torn because I think Kavaris Thomas has all the potential in the world and maybe I'm biased because he's a local guy from Lakeland. I am still holding out hope that I think Davis Shanley can kind of actualize some of the potential because we saw some of him in spurts. And the reason why I believe that he can be the guy is because we saw last year with Ty's story. They're not going to ask the Western Kentucky quarterback to go out there and sling it like Mason Fine or Chris Robinson and put the team on his back and throw for 4,000 yards. Right. And when Davis Shanley did play in the 2018 season, he was a guy who granted he didn't make a ton of plays, and he wasn't necessarily that game manager, so to speak. But what he did do is he completed a ton of balls. He, he was very accurate. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I believe he went 65, 66, 67% of his passes, completed something like three touchdowns, two interceptions. So just someone who, as Ty Story showed, if you can be that game manager, let Western Kentucky's defense, which is legit, we know that for a fact, let them lean on that, lean on the run game, and let that offensive line just grade teams down. Western Kentucky can win eight, nine, 10 games this year. So I'm going to go with Davis Shanley. Interesting. You know, I, I, like we've said before, that quarterback room at Western has been so crowded over the last three, four years. It's interesting that anybody's kind of managed to stand out. And, um, you know, I, I think obviously we have some time here before Tyson Helton needs to name a starter, but really all three of these guys, I think could make an interesting case for, uh, that job. Um, it, it, you got to feel for Davis Shanley because a he's obviously like he's been the most um, I don't want to say battle tested because obviously Pigram's had uh, plenty of time to to play against um, quality opponents as well. But we just when you think about what the Western program specifically has been through um, over the last three four years or so and how he's uh, you know had to weather that and and take some some pretty some pretty big hits and and deal with some frustrating losses um you have to feel for him there um and then Kavaris Thomas who it, we've talked about it at length so I won't really dive into it but it's it's so interesting to me how he has been he's the highest rated quarterback recruit Western's ever had and one of the highest rated recruits the school's had ever and he really hasn't had I don't think a proper opportunity to showcase what he can do and now I think it's only gonna get tougher for him with with the addition of Pickerham so very interested to see how that situation shakes out uh, over the next 
couple of months. Um, and then to close it out, uh, just some kind of fun talk on uh, the Charlotte 49ers on the most recent episode. You just listened to us talk to Coach Will Healy about what his program's been up to over the last couple of months and how he kind of adjusted to uh, the FBS level coming from Austin P. and then obviously leading uh, Charlotte to their first bowl game last season. Um, they're going to be... Wearing us some new looks this year, um, the school actually just rebranded their entire athletic department uh, with some new logos. They're going to have new uniforms, um, and uh, I'll, I'll embed a tweet in the article of this podcast episode if you want to go ahead and look at what we're talking about. Um, but, you know, in short, Eric, I'm curious to get your thoughts on here. For me, I kind of dig it. You know, I, I give this a, a solid, like, B+. Plus. Um I do think like based on kind of the uniform concepts that they presented, um, I don't love all of them, but overall, I think the logo itself works. I think um, kind of the secondary ones that they presented are, are pretty good. I don't love the like CLT stuff that's in there, um, in particular how they like really made that mark kind of like a mainstay of like the basketball uniform specifically. But um, yeah, no, I think overall, like I think you've seen – a lot of schools do a way worse job with rebrands over the course of the last five to 10 years or so. And, you know, they've been using this logo for 20 years. Like it, it was probably time for a rebrand. And overall, I think they could have done a lot worse with this. Okay. So I want to get this on the record here. I am not against the rebrand. I actually think, and you made the key point when most teams and programs, I don't care if it's college, you know, professional, whatever, when they rebrand, it tends to go left. It tends to be like, why the hell did you do that? And five years are changing back to, you know, the uniforms they had before, right? Mm -hmm. In this case, I am was a massive fan of the old Charlotte uniform, specifically the Charlotte football helmet. Uh, I was a huge fan of the pickaxe, huge mm -hmm. fan of that. You know, I, first off, I loved the colors, the, the gold helmet. My favorite one was the gold helmet with that C logo with the pickaxe. I was a huge fan of that. Um, but like I said, this isn't a bad rebrand. I think it just matters that specifically their entire uniform. I kind of loved their, their colors with that green, with kind of the small Charlotte print, uh, across the chest. I know people listen to this podcast and are probably tired of me, like fawning over Charlotte, probably wondering if I, if I work for the school, I don't, <laughs> I just was a fan of, of their, their colors, probably because my high school had similar colors and specifically their uniforms. But with that being said. Not a bad rebrand. Uh, the, the point that you mentioned as far as the CLT, they did go out of the way to emphasize that on the basketball uniforms. And I only take issue with that because there's another team in the same city that's doing CLT, being the professional Charlotte Hornets. So a little bit kind of iffy on that. But like I said, not a bad rebrand. It's not like I see these and I'm like, oh man, these are terrible. You know, uh, it's... In, in, in the realm of rebrands go, it's solid. You know, that solid C emphasis, I, 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 can, I can get with that. It'll grow on me. I just was a major fan of the old helmet specifically. For sure, for sure. Um, I do think as they go, they'll find ways to adapt and, and shift their focus away from, you know, the aspects of this that don't work like any good college sports marketers do. And, um, you know, having talked to a lot of the people who are probably involved in this project over the course of, of my own uh, career in sports. Um, I, I, I know them to be, uh, 
smart and nimble and th- if something's not working they'll they'll find a way to get around it but um like i said there have been far far worse rebrands in college sports over the last 10 to 15 years so um i think there's a lot of good and uh, some bad to take away from this but if you're a 49er fan i think you should be relatively happy at least on the football side um so fun stuff with that, let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap this episode up. But it's uh, it's been fun catching up with you, Eric. If you want to follow either of us on Twitter, it's at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore for me, at Eric C. Henry underscore for him, and then, of course, at Underdog Dynasty on Twitter. Um, you can like them on Facebook as well if you will prefer to get your football fixed that way. And, uh, of course, you can come back to UnderdogDynasty.com for more G5 football goodness. Um, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Check us out on Spotify, too. And if you have the time, leave us a review. It really helps the show grow. Um, all right. We'll be back soon, hopefully with another uh, top-notch guest to continue the off-season series. Uh, Or it'll just be me and Eric shooting the breeze again. That's always fun. All right. Uh, Eric, good to talk to you again, buddy. Happy football watching, everybody. 